It's February 5th, 2014, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ran Ozawa, and we cover the geek beat here on Hawaii Public Radio. First, we'll look at the latest tech news and happenings in Hawaii and beyond. And joining us today is Nicole Velasco to tell us about the upcoming Neighborhood Commission tweet-up. Finally, we'll get an update on plans to build an undersea power cable between Hawaiian islands. We'd, of course, love your questions and comments as part of that conversation. Be ready to call in or tweet. But first, the headlines. Well, plans to build the 30-meter telescope atop Mauna Kea continue to inch forward over a decade since it was first conceived and nearly five years since Hawaii was selected as the site of what was to be the world's largest ground-based optical telescope. The TNP project has already committed $1 million a year to support scholarships and educational programs on the Big Island, and now project managers are working with a consortium of Hawaii Island schools and businesses to launch a workforce development program. The Hawaii Tribune-Herald reported on Monday that the group wants to create a pathway for Big Island students and residents to get jobs related to the telescope's operation, from technology to engineering to astronomy. Last month, Big Island lawmakers attended a presentation organized by TMTO officials, the State Department of Labor, UH Hilo, and Hawaii Community College. Organizers conceded that most observatory-related jobs today at Big Island observatories are held by people from outside the Big Island. Well, UH Hilo has already begun to develop a new engineering program with the TMT in mind. University spokesman uh, Jerry Chang told the Tribune-Herald, instead of hiring people out of state, let's use our local workforce. Governor Neil Abercrombie, in his State of the State address, described the TMT as the catalyst for the development of high technology and high-paying jobs. But in order for that to be true, Hawaii needs to have a qualified workforce to fill them. Now, you know, of course, this is not like the first telescope that's going up on Mauna Kea. I mean, it's uh, there's been a whole sort of history of of, of telescopes 50 going years up. Of yeah, the there's uh, you know, Keck has been one of our primary. Uh, um, source of, of stories, you know, the Subaru and Gemini. and So anyway, there's, um, you know, there's a bunch of stuff that's up there. And I think over, over those years, I mean, they must have th- been thinking about trying to build up a workforce that would support these telescopes. Yeah, but I mean, still, they, they basically talked about the, a survey that was done that found that uh, 40% of um, people in tech and administrative jobs come from overseas and that 86% um, basically go to people who were not born and raised on the Big mm-hmm, Island. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, developing a local workforce makes sense. In fact, they basically said that right now a specific category, uh, instrument development and operational support work, go to contractors and businesses outside Hawaii. I mean, that's 30 to $40 million that leaves Hawaii that I think, you know, you, it makes sense to try to keep that here. Well, you know, the other interesting thing is that uh, if you were to go and get a degree in astronomy, you probably cannot get an undergrad degree here in Hawaii. Uh, there is no undergrad degree. I mean, basically, you have to go in and get a Ph.D. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's a it's a... You know, fairly specialized field to get into. But, of course, the TMT is still working its way through the system. Mm-hmm. There's a, a, a ruling on land, on a, on a, a appeal to the land, um, land use uh, permit that they received. And they actually, um, the TMT board also wants to be a participant in a lawsuit on Maui over construction there and, and a, a dispute over the permit. So mm-hmm. we're going to continue to report it. I mean, they were planning to start construction this year to be done by 2022. So we'll keep an eye on that. 
University of Hawaii researchers announced today the completion of the second phase of an ambitious project to tag and track tiger sharks in waters around Maui. The team caught and released nine target sharks since the start of the year, outfitting six of them with satellite transmitters. Hawaii did see a record 14 shark attacks last year, eight of them around Maui. The headlines prompted the State Department of Land and Natural Resources to launch a two-year, $186,000 study of where tiger sharks are spending their time and where those areas overlap with human activity. Well, the first phase of the project launched last fall tagged eight of the 15 tiger sharks caught and released off the south shore of Maui. Five of the sharks tagged this year were from the northern coast, and one was tagged off of Oluwalu in uh, west west of Maui. While all satellite transmitters are operating, only two have sent data robust enough to determine their locations. The researchers note that the sharks are also carrying acoustic tags that ping underwater receivers deployed on the seafloor around the Valley Isle. Lead researchers Carl Meyer and Kim Holland noted that this latest tagging trip was timed to coincide with tiger shark mating season when large male sharks are easier to catch. All tagged sharks had fresh mating scars and the effects of biological cycles like mating and pupping are among the things that the research project is tracking. And while the research team, which is based at the Hawaii Institute of Marine Biology, will be using the volumes of data that it collects to help the state develop ocean management plans, they are also making the locations of the tagged sharks available to the public on the web. Now, you know, the uh, we, we talked about this story back in, uh, I think it was October of last year, how, and they uh, had sort of kicked it off, and they had set up a website to actually allow anybody to view the locations of, of some of the sharks. But I guess there has been some renewed um, or new tags put on the sharks or more sharks I right. guess, that have tags now because particularly because of the mating season and they want to know kind of where are they going during this mating season. Right, absolutely. So that's at the Pacific Islands Ocean Observing System, P-A-C-I-O-O-S, org. Um, but yeah, this was the second phase, the second batch, and of course now the next batch will be, uh, I think, off uh the North Shore or the South Shore, a separate area of of uh, Maui. But they said that they're also going to be doing some concurrent tagging of sharks off Oahu because mm-hmm. they do want to have such sort of concurrent data between sharks off both of these islands to see if their behaviors vary based on the island. Good stuff. Uh, as <clears throat> talking about the ocean, uh, as the Polynesian Voyaging Society uh, prepares to kick off the first international leg of its five-year Worldwide Voyage and May, their efforts to explore and share their message of sustainability got a boost from Hawaiian Electric Industries, the parent company of the state's three largest power utilities and American Savings Bank last week announced a $250,000 grant to help the Voyaging Society to document and share scientific and cultural information during the journey. The star of the worldwide voyage is the Hokulea, which is navigated via traditional practices using only the stars and mother nature, but the voyaging canoe is accompanied by a high-tech, ecologically friendly support canoe, the Hikianalia. Hikianalia is outfitted with photovoltaic panels, electric motors, and satellite communications gear, and alongside the Hokulea, the two vessels are described as bridging culture, tradition, and indigenous knowledge with modern technology. Well, the five-year HEI grant will support collecting, interpreting, and sharing data and discoveries from the voyage with a global audience, including Hawaii students 
And American Savings Bank has separately committed to support the society's ongoing marketing and fundraising efforts. Nainoa Thompson, um, society president and lead navigator, said in a statement, we are grateful, grateful for the strong partnership with individuals, businesses, and organizations who share our values and vision for the worldwide voyage. This contribution will help assure a sustainable future that honors the health and well-being of our islands, oceans, and culture and people. Now, you know, I, I talked to, I got a chance to talk to Clyde Namuo and uh, just asked him about, you know, the um, the grant that they got and it would get used, you know, in what what manner. I mean, the, you know, there's a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of food, there's a lot of lodging, there's a lot of operational costs that go into this four-year journey. And, they're, you know, they're going around the world. So, um, you know, the $250 helps a lot, but, you know, their overall objective is to try to raise something on the order of 12 to $15 million. Right, and again, this is a five-year voyage. It's already begun. It begun, I think, last year, the Hawaii, the Ma'alama Hawaii leg. Mm-hmm. They went to 33 communities on all of the islands, um, and it was kind of an outreach program. And, in fact, when we talk about their data being used by schools with curriculum and lesson plans, they got 175 schools in Hawaii to follow the voyage as they kick off here in May. But uh, they basically are spreading the message of sustainability. They say, you know, just like living on a canoe, our ability to survive is directly dependent on our ability to help each other. But, yes, there's a significant fundraising element Mm -hmm, to it. mm -hmm. If you go to their website at hokulea.org, there are ways to contribute and support as well. $250,000 sounds like it's a fair chunk of change, but across five years, you know, it's just a little piece. And uh, I think they've uh, successfully got about 10%, so they're still working to to raise uh, a lot more. Uh, and you know, of course, a lot of the a uh, lot of the uh, money will go to supporting the Hikianalia because uh, that's the sort of the high tech canoe. Right. I would imagine on the Hokulea, you eat the fish and you live sustainably. But if you've got a if you got well, they got power, the photovoltaics <laughs> and everything on the you know, Hikianalia. You got to right? pay the satellite uh, yeah. satellite bill for sure. The University of Foy at Manoa is part of a new pilot program that it says could revolutionize the way libraries share books in a digital world. Called Occam's Reader, the pro- project is based on new software aimed at the long-standing interlibrary loan program. Developed by the Web Interface Development Team at the UH Manoa Libraries and their counterparts at Texas Tech University, Occam's Reader is backed by the Greater Western Library Alliance. It's designed to facilitate ebook interlibrary loans. Well, such exchanges have actually been allowed under the licensed terms of most e-books and their publishers, but there is not yet a standardized process for doing so. Occam's Reader provides secure online access to borrowed books or even individual chapters. In addition to setting up a process for requesting, processing, and delivering e-books, the software helps libraries comply with licensing provisioning and copyright laws and provides them with usage statistics. Occam's Reader is also device agnostic and should work on any computer or device. At the outset, Occam's Reader plugs into the Iliad system used by many university libraries and supports chapters and books in PDF format only. But while the pilot includes only one academic publisher, the long-term goal is, of course, to work with all major publishers. Naomi Chow, interlibrary loan librarian at UH Manoa, said in a statement, we're excited to be a development partner in this project that has the potential to change the way research libraries work with publishers. Our goal is to make Occam's Reader the gold standard for electronic loans. I got a chance to talk to Naomi, and she said that, you know, there's uh, a lot more books that are coming out that aren't coming out in hard copy form. They're just coming out in e-book formats. And, you know, a lot of the university libraries sort of function in somewhat of a silo. So, you know, it's hard to get the books really shared amongst the libraries. 
you end up having to buy it outright, you know, individually. Now, this this kind of Occam's Reader uh, arrangement isn't really cost-saving so much as it is really testing the uh, feasibility of the ease of flow of shared resources amongst uh, institutions. Right, and certainly e-books are probably the way of the future. They need to be prepared for that. And because publishers are concerned about copyright and license use, there's digital rights management mm-hmm, or DRM mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. ways to make it hard for you to just transfer the book to someone else, you know, not making infinite copies of it. And while I, I certainly believe the college students in particular have the skills to try to find their way around those systems, just like with uh, uh, music sales online today, it, the better path is to just create a legitimate system that is much more convenient and easier to use. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is still, I love the name, Occam's Reader. It's still fairly early, though, in the development, you know, PDF only and such. Uh, they had an online demo at Occam'sReader.org, but basically it's a it's a web presentation of a book. There's no search. There's, you know, not any advanced uh, uh, elements to it. It's, it's basically based on an email that you get that mm-hmm. has a token that says you're authorized to look at this book. But it's a great first step, and uh, it's kind of neat, again, that here you, at UH Mano, who you would imagine probably has the biggest distance to span when you're shipping physical books, it makes sense that we are part of a project to make it easier to do it electronically. So the uh, the collaboration involved, you know, UH and Texas Tech, and I guess Texas Tech uh, developed the Occam's Reader sort of on the server side, and UH actually helped develop the, the reader part of it. So yeah, it's a web it, interface. Right. So they, I guess, uh, like you said, it's it's in its beta for uh, beta stage. There's a lot more work that needs to be done, so, you know, I think uh, they're, they're trudging away. I'll try it out. Yeah. And a couple of quick, uh, well, one quick uh, tech calendar note we wanted to share with you. Later on this month, Leeward Community College will be hosting its fifth annual Geek Day. The event offers free hands-on workshops and demonstrations on a variety of digital, mobile, and technology topics from social media and cloud computing to digital photography and computer security. Geek Day is Saturday, February 22nd at LCC. And for more information, you can visit Day. Dot Webly.com. Weebly. Weebly. W-E-E-B-L. But uh, Geek Day is a great event. Geeks get their day. And now joining us in the studio is Nicole Velasco, and she's the Executive Secretary of the Neighborhood Commission, and she's here to tell us about the upcoming uh, Neighborhood Commission tweet-up. Welcome to the show, Nicole. Thank you so much for having me here on your show today. Yeah, well, you know, the uh, the Neighborhood uh, Commission, this is kind of a, a first for you, right? I mean, doing a, a tweet-up. I mean, I know, I know the mayor did a... Uh, did a uh, Twitter town hall uh, late last year, and then uh, now you're doing kind of a a tweet-up, getting people together. What do you have in mind? So we are definitely following on the heels of the mayor's Twitter town hall, which was quite a success for the first ever. Uh, Just the same, this is actually the first tweet-up that this office will be Mm -hmm. having in its entire 41-year history. And that's largely in part due to the fact that we just recently got all of our social media accounts. So we finally have our Twitter, our Facebook, and as of last week, our Instagram. So what we're looking to do is really bring together a lot of our social media trenders and other relevant users, both in our neighborhood board system as well as in the greater public, and to kind of have a meeting of the minds, so to speak. So we'll be sharing some information about what we've been doing and some upcoming campaigns that we'll be launching throughout the year. But we are very, very interested in finding out from these particular individuals 
what they think the future of civic engagement is in the digital age. Well, mm-hmm. that's certainly something that Bert and I spend a lot of time thinking about as well. And Nicole, I know you're doing a, a great job, and it's not an easy job. And I would say that a lot of people, you know, don't think much about neighborhood boards. I know that sometimes it's a challenge just to find people to run for the positions there. And the only time they end up in the news is if someone calls the cops and someone's arguing about something. So it, if that's a venue, if that's the primary venue to represent your neighborhood, uh, looking to people who are perhaps younger, uh, perhaps use other tools to provide feedback, I think that's 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 pretty, pretty forward-looking. Now, do you foresee a time where uh, neighborhood boards start to not just you know, put information out and maybe draw people to tweet-ups, but use some of these platforms as part of the way they conduct their business. I certainly think that in the coming future, there's certainly a place for the in-person meetings that we have currently. But like you said, we need to look at other access points for information for folks who can't make it to the meetings. Perhaps they have a second job or they're a busy student or they're starting a new family. So if we can become more accessible, then in whatever way people tend to digest their own media and information will make us a better government service as well as a better organization to provide for civic engagement. So what does the uh, the neighborhood commission sort of have as, a, as oversight um, influence over the neighborhood boards? I mean, do some of the technologies that you might leverage uh, get, uh, I guess, uh, pushed out to some of the neighborhood boards? So we actually, it, it will probably help to explain how the system is comprised. So there are three major portions. The first and foremost is that of the Neighborhood Commission, which is a nine-member volunteer commission. And they serve as sort of the policy oversight for the entire system, as well as looking at how how do we improve this system over the course of time. Then where, where I sit is with the Neighborhood Commission office, and we serve as the administrators for both the commission, as well as a third part, which is which would be the neighborhood boards themselves, Mm -hmm. 33 boards with 439 volunteer members. And so kind of in tandem, both with the commission and with the office, we are looking at ways that we can reach out and to see if we can try some of these tools that we have that are widely used, but see if we can incorporate them into the daily business of the neighborhood boards. And I can certainly imagine that uh, coordinating is a challenge. Some neighborhood boards might be very uh, advanced or very enthusiastic. They have a Facebook page and they have a Twitter account and others have no idea, no interest in doing that. And from your office, you have to make sure that everything is relatively even and straightforward and, you know, follows all of the policies that need to be in place. You used to serve on a neighborhood board, correct? I used to serve on the number 15 Kalihi Palama board very proudly so uh, what what do you think uh, you, you want to get out of this meeting I mean it's it sounds like you're both going to kind of explain to people how the neighborhood board system works but you want to hear what people have to say as well definitely we're looking at it as a, as a two-way street where we can send out some information and make sure that a lot of our our heavy users as well as our existing board members learn about what we're trying to do but also hear back from the public as well as these social media trenders to find out what are we missing where can we supplement our our current plan, and where can we enhance it to make sure that it's as optimized as can be? Mm-hmm. Now, this is going to be the uh, the first one. Do you have in mind what might happen in subsequent uh, events? Certainly, we we want to continue, and and certainly we'll find out if we have a good formula going for potentially a second tweet up in the future. But we will be looking at other types of campaigns that we'll launch, and a lot of that will center around using different hashtags to create other conversations about different parts of the system. Mm-hmm. Now, I know that uh, this event, um, you were looking for maybe 20 people. You ended up getting 
50 people because Bert tweeted about it and <laughs> everybody right. wants to be where Bert is. So it might be difficult to attend in person, but it is about these platforms. So how and when can someone participate in this conversation about neighborhood boards? Absolutely. So we were quite surprised that we got actually now 56 RSVPs, <laughs> uh, which for a first timer, we're, we're certainly excited to make sure that we have a good event. The event will be on February 11th, which is a Tuesday next week from 5.30 to 7.30 p.m. And folks who can't actually make it to the tweet up itself can just use the hashtag NCO tweet up and use our handle at HNLNCO to follow the conversation, see what's being said, and to participate from wherever you happen to be in the state of Hawaii. Sounds good. Fantastic. And then, uh, you know, we'll report back later on and see, uh, well, you know, what sort of actions got taken as a result of the tweet-up. But we're, we're excited about it. Well, thanks, Nicole, for joining us. Mahalo for helping the city and county of Honolulu for reaching your esteemed audience. Oh, They're great folks. Uh, you, maybe you'll get two more sign up for, uh, for the tweet-up. <laughs> anyway, that's what's been happening this week. We'll take a short break. And when we return, we'll be joined by Mark Glick and Dean Nishina to give us an update on the undersea power cable. Where did this idea come from? How has it evolved? And how will an undersea power cable benefit the people of Hawaii? We'd, of course, love your thoughts or questions as part of that conversation. You can give us a call. Join us on the air, 941-3689, or toll-free from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. And, of course, we're monitoring Twitter live right here, so you can tweet us your questions at ByteMarks or at Hawaii. This is ByteMarks Cafe. Many local businesses and organizations support Hawaii Public Radio. Through corporate sponsorships, they provide us with 25% of our operating budget. It's a way to reach HPR's audience with your message and at the same time support the station. And we'd love to provide you with on-air recognition for your support. To learn more, go to the HPR website, hawaiipublicradio.org, and click on support. The HPR website. It's just a click away. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Jan Frazier, author of When Fear Falls Away, the story of a sudden awakening. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about how it's possible to live a life without suffering. Sunday morning at 11. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And joining us today is Mark Glick and Dean Ishina. Mark is the administrator for the State Energy Office of the Department of Business and Economic Development and Tourism. And he manages and develops, oversees, and implements statewide energy programs and supports the state clean energy objectives. Dean, meanwhile, is the executive director of the Division of Consumer Advocacy and Department of, at the Department of Commerce and Consumer Affairs. And how has the plan for an undersea power cable evolved over the years? We'd love to hear your comments and questions. And, of course, that number to call is 941-3689 on Oahu or 1-877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. Mark and Dean, we want to welcome you both to Bite Mark's Cafe. Wow, it's great to be here. Yeah, well, you know, you're, you're like an old animal. <laughs> I mean, we always have you here to talk about energy. And, of course, you know, this topic of the undersea power cable has been one that we've been talking about at least for the last five years that we've been on the radio. <laughs> uh, but, Mark, maybe give us a little perspective on uh, where it's uh, been and how it's uh, evolved from, you know, its sort of first iteration. And uh, maybe we can start with that. Sure. You know, it, it uh, began long before my tenure uh, as administrator. But uh, in the beginning, uh, by previous um, uh, gubernatorial administration, mm -hmm. 
there was a plan uh, primarily to bring uh, big wind, you know, large-scale wind, utility-scale wind, uh, through a generation tie, what we call a generation tie, through uh, essentially an extension cord uh, <laughs> directly from uh, Molokai and Lanai to uh, Oahu. And uh, basically you had two major landowners on each of the islands that wanted to develop. They saw it as a, a potential renov- uh, revenue uh, generating mm-hmm. effort. Uh, the public had some significant concerns about it on both islands. Uh, the state uh, at the time uh, did consider uh, developing the cable that was involved in that um, and uh, was at one point uh, even considered owning and operating the cable. Uh, when uh, uh, Neil Abercrombie became uh, uh, governor and uh, a new director of DBED was uh, brought in, Richard Lim, uh, the notion of the state owning and operating a major uh, <laughs> transmission infrastructure was uh, ruled out, mm-hmm. uh, thought the private sector could do that uh, well. And then when I became an administrator, we actually re-looked at the whole idea of uh, generation tie and saying, you know, we think if you look at a statewide um, energy system, uh, building a new energy ecosystem built around clean energy, uh, what's the most advantageous thing to do? What would be also in the community interest? And there are a lot of comments, of course, about developing large utility-scale, you know, installations on any specific place. And there was something called a programmatic environmental impact statement that was um, part of a the National Environmental Policy Act, and that was supposed to look at what's the environmental cultural impacts. Um, we decided to really open up that process uh, and kind of change the framework mm-hmm. of that. Now, uh, Dean, you know, during the time when the the, the sort of the first uh, iteration of the undersea power cable was being proposed, uh, what kind of what kind of sort of community response was being generated from the neighbor. And, and, and at that time, it was primarily Molokai and Lanai that was getting uh, sort of the, uh, the, the, the generating systems that were then powering, you know, and the power was being sent back to Oahu, right? Well, um, first, I'd like to say thank you for having me here. And sure. Uh, I'd also like to thank um, the, uh, the, the apparent immediate uh, promotion that I got, because actually Jeff Ono is the executive director of the Division of Consumer Well, you know, Advocacy. we normally promote people on, on the, the radio air. show. So yeah. I'm yeah. very honored yeah, to yeah, have yeah, that no. promotion. For the next 40 minutes, you are. But, but okay. <laughs> no, that's fine. But, that's, um, that's what Jeff happens when Jeff doesn't show up, right? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I'm in charge now. Um, but but actually, yeah, the, the, the cable was initially a response to a request for a proposal for energy to come to Oahu. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. then the, the leading proposals at the time Time, uh, was 200 megawatts from Lanai and 200 megawatts from Molokai. Mm-hmm. Um, for the most part, the Molokai residents are very resistant to a lot of development. So right off the bat, Molokai wasn't very uh, supportive of, of the project that was being proposed. Lanai initially was uh, somewhat resistant, but at the time, the, the island was primarily being owned in, um, by, by um, David Murdoch. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And... David Murdoch reached out to the residents and basically said um, that you know the operations on the night was weren't doing very well and he needed this 
uh, wind energy project to generate revenues to make sure that people have jobs. Mm -hmm. And so over time, actually, the people on the night began to recognize that if they didn't support this project, there's a good chance that the hotels on on Lanai would close and then they'd be out of jobs. So the the, the tide was slowly shifting, although there were still some very vocal opponents to the project. Uh, But once Larry Ellison came along and bought the island and he has different plans for the island. Mm-hmm. Uh, at this point, I'd, I'd have to say the people in Lanai are, are resistant to the idea of being uh, the, uh, the location of a big wind project. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, Mark, I mean, what, what basically seemed to have happened was that feedback was heard um, mm-hmm. because the most recent, uh, even when we covered it here on the show, it was you know, a shift from big wind on two islands and a one-way, you know, Pipe. sucking of energy by the hungry, power-hungry Honolulu residents from neighbor islands using their natural resources to a new plan that is more of an, uh, about connecting and moving power two ways to stabilize grids on two different islands. And I think part of it came from separating this uh, this interest and this research into an undersea cable from specific proposals at the PUC. I mean, so how how did this transition occur? Well, when the state policy directive became interconnection as a primary initiative, you know, we have a five-point energy policy, and uh, the third one is the interconnect, or the second one is the interconnection of islands through uh, cables. Uh, but the idea was to create a more stable environment in which we could incorporate more renewable energy. And to do that through connection of grids to expand the grids and create greater reliability was fundamentally different than uh, providing a sort of a one-way flow of electrons. So really it was the concept of what's in the best interest of a renewable energy statewide program. And once we looked at what is in that best interest, it became clear that's that was uh, a more appropriate answer. I think the uh, Public Utilities Commission uh, agreed with that position and decided to um, uh, fundamentally change or alter the RFP. Uh, they came out with new orders, I believe, in June of uh, or late May of 2013 uh, that asked the question, and, and uh, um, you know, I think uh, we can talk into, into more detail about what those specific questions were, but the general overall question is an Oahu Maui grid tie in the public interest. We're talking to Mark Glick from the <coughs> state's energy office at uh, DBED and Dean Nishina from the Division of Consumer Advocacy or the Department of Consumer Advocacy over at the Department of Commerce and Consumer Affairs about plans and thoughts and explorations of building an undersea power cable to stabilize the energy grids of Maui and Oahu as one example. If you want to ask a question or make a comment, you can give us a call at 941-3689. That's here on Oahu or from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. And you can reach us toll free. We're also listening on Twitter at Bite Marks. Um, So, uh, well, Dean, can you tell us a little bit about that? Um, I actually tried to read the PUC's uh, document, basically where they said this is something that we are going to be driving. It's not driven by a specific bid from a provider or a utility or a or a or a company. This is something that the POC wants to initiate to explore this, and that's not, that's generally not the common way that this kind of work is done. Correct. Generally, the applications that are filed, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, and, and yes, that's correct. Uh, generally, the applications filed are filed by utility companies with the Public Utilities Commission, and then they seek comments or input from 
interested stakeholders, and then they reach a decision in order. I think there was significant public concern with the uh, earlier request for proposal that was suggesting that there might be a wind project on Lona'i and a wind project on Molokai that caused them to come up with the orders that Mark was mentioning Mm -hmm. earlier to say what we'd like to do is separate some of these issues out so that they ordered that there would be a, a new proceeding to specifically investigate the feasibility of the Oahu Maui interconnection as a grid tie instead of a gen tie, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and so uh, it it kind of took the investigation in a more specific route as it relates to interconnection because the earlier request for proposal uh, was just looking for energy from any source mm-hmm. could be on Oahu, could be from a neighbor island, uh, but in 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 opening up this new investigation, the commission is trying to make it more transparent in terms of let's look specifically at what might be the cost and what might be the benefits from having a grid tie between Oahu and Maui. So the PUC's uh, sort of re-modifying or modifying the, uh, um, you know, the proposal, uh, the RFP, how much of it was actually influenced by community response or community opinion as well as the fact that, uh, let's say, first win, uh, that whole kind of deal started to kind of, you know, fall by the wayside? What was it that really helped pivot, you know, the the relooking at the um, the RFP? Well, I, I think it it had a lot to do with community concern because, as I was mentioning earlier, again, Molokai wasn't very supportive of the proposal from the get go, mm-hmm. and Lanai was slowly shifting. But again, with with the purchase of Lanai, eighty eight percent of Lanai by Larry Ellison, the public sentiment started to sway back to you know we don't want to be a source a, a battery for mm-hmm. the island right, of right, Oahu. Right. And that's that's still a comment we hear very frequently from um, the neighbor islands. In fact, at the recent uh, public meeting on, on Maui, some, some of the comments still resonate along those lines mm-hmm. in terms of we don't why, why should we have to provide energy to Oahu? Can't Oahu take care of itself? Um, so with, with that, you know, the commission, again, um, thought that it would be good to look at the Oahu-Maui connection. And, and part of that, investigation, I think, was the county of Maui seemed to express a little more interest in being a source of, of uh, renewable energy to Oahu than Lanai or Molokai. And, and uh, Oahu may be the, the population center, so to speak. Mm-hmm. It has the largest uh, density in terms of population. But in terms of natural resources for renewable energy, the, um, the neighbor islands, um, Hawaii Island, Maui, Lanai, Molokai, certainly have uh, more uh, they have sources that promise to provide a, a more reliable source of energy. So that's that's one of the reasons why the commission is looking at the costs and benefits associated with a uh, undersea cable. Mm-hmm. We're talking to uh, Dean Nishina from the uh, Division of Consumer Advocacy and Mark Glick from the uh, from DBED, the uh, uh, Energy Office uh, at the Department of Business and Economic Development and Tourism. And we're talking about the undersea power cable. And if you have any com- any comment or uh, question. Feel free to give us a call here. The number is 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands at one 941 3689 We want to welcome Eddie from Maui to uh, Bite Marks Cafe. Welcome to the show. Hey, hello. How are you doing? Good, um, good. Listen, um, I, I'm uh, always wondering when a, uh, an alternative energy uh, program starts up, windmills, everyone, uh, well, not everyone, a certain uh, vocal group of people want to stop alternative energies. From happening, I guess, because burning oil in our generators is more 
profitable for Texas or Republican Party. But I, I just, I just wonder what's the problem with it. If uh, if we have we have these resources here, if the electricity is sent to Oahu, then it's not used on Maui to uh, turn Maui into another Honolulu, even though all the real estate hustlers want to do that. But if you want to really affect uh, energy efficiency, everybody talks about it all the time. But like here on Maui, it took me uh, 25 minutes to drive from Wailuku to Derry Road. Because uh, I guess when Lingle was governor, they set up the stoplights to stop us at every corner. So our engines run, and uh, then we end up uh, spending, uh, uh, what, 55 cents a gallon of well, Eddie, taxes I, for I, the state revenue. Instead, you know, instead of actually being able to function in a road system, you know, I think energy efficiency is important. No, I, I, I hear you. I, I hear your point, Eddie, and I think uh, you've you've uh, you've hit the nail on the head. I mean, in terms of uh, I think your position on it, and obviously, in the I don't know if you went to the uh, public hearing over on Maui, but uh, you know, there's obviously some opposition to having the windmills on Maui. Uh, you know, even if the argument now is more of a uh, res- you know building a more resilient uh, uh, electrical grid. Yeah, well, the electrical grid is one thing, uh, but it's like, uh, you know, I'm saying, like, uh, you know, why did Linda Lingle spend $10 million to remove 40% of the parking in Lahaina? Why did they remove 100 parking stalls from Paia so that there's traffic jams in local shopping districts so people can't shop there, and we waste gas, we drive around in circles, and the state collects revenue from it, 55 cents a gallon. And, uh, you know, and so if, if everybody wants to be uh, you know, uh, talking about... Uh, alternative energies, then let's do something about it. But the energy is being wasted millions of gallons in this state every year because of uh, corruption uh, and uh, basically uh, using the road infrastructure to extract money from the drivers. If you're listening to this in a traffic jam, just notice how every stoplight stops you on every corner. Well, thank you, Eddie, for your call. And I think uh, certainly many people can uh, agree with many of the frustrations that come with everyday life. Uh, and I would say that when you're talking about energy efficiency, there are a number of different ways to approach that. Mm-hmm. Maybe having less cars on the road um, and better uh, traffic systems is a good way to accomplish that. But, Mark, let me ask you, I mean, what do you, what, what do you think about that and what, what Dean was saying earlier? Uh, in fact, what pops into my head, I, I know people who are solar installers here on Oahu, and right now there's a big issue with the ability of the Oahu power grid to support more solar power generated here on Oahu. Um, whereas Maui is an island that has been having a great amount of success in generating more power renewably. Um, is connecting those two grids uh, the best, maybe a, 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 the best top priority versus right now when we're worried about the stability specifically of the Wahoo grid, or is that exactly why we need it? Yeah, exactly. I, I think that, and the caller brings up something important, and, and this question we get a lot, you know, do you make choices? Do you do, you do one or the other? Actually, in this case, we have to deal with uh, efficiency, and we have very, very ambitious programs uh, to improve efficiency. Uh, we've also called for power plant efficiency, which is above and beyond the energy efficiency portfolio standards the state has. Uh, but we also need to do a number of things in distributed energy at the same time that we look to utility-scale uh, solutions. So all of those together are extremely helpful. Uh, but we don't do one at a time. We do them all together, and we have to pursue them aggressively. The infrastructure, uh, the transmission link, uh, the grid tie provides five key uh, elements of savings 
or benefits. Uh, first, the cable project provides significant ratepayer savings. It also Im- improves grid reliability and flexibility, and it will reduce curtailment. So with the excess wind that's being currently generated and curtailed on Maui, because they're the circuit limitations mm-hmm. you were kind of referring to, that will be resolved through a grid tie, a larger unified grid between Oahu, connecting the grids of Oahu and and Maui. So those are just some of the direct improvements that will be realized by ratepayers and also uh, by energy consumers throughout the state. You know, uh, <clears throat> we've got a number of callers lined up, and of course, uh, we welcome the uh, neighbor island calls. But we want to, before we actually jump into that, we want to kind of hold our conversation. We'll be right back after this short break to continue our conversation with both Mark Glick and Dean Nishina about building a statewide electrical grid. And what is the statewide strategy for energy consumption? What does it involve technologically? We'd, of course, love to hear from you, and we will after the break. You can give us a call at 941-3689 or from the neighbor islands, 877-941-3689. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I listen to Hawaii Public Radio every morning when I'm driving to work. It it energizes me for the day, and it gives me that information that I need to be effective. It informs my day, and uh, I really relish that time in the car, as crazy as that may sound, to actually uh, be educated on what's going on in the world. Member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Radio with vision. Listen and see. Rumor has it that local Chinese restaurants have a secret menu that they don't always share with Americans. I was offended that somehow I got the American Chinese menu because I guess they saw me with my friend who's not Chinese and sort of rounded down. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Secrets in the Chinese food business revealed. Next time on Marketplace from APM. This evening at 6, following Bite Marks Cafe. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. We're talking to Mark Glick and Dean Nishina about creating an energy solution that might benefit the entire state. And how does the uh, project like this get funded? Of course, we'll get into that uh, before uh, before the end of the show. Of course, now you can give us a call here. The number is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. And we've got a lineup of callers uh, waiting to get their questions in. We want to welcome Guy from Lanai to Bite Marks Cafe. Welcome to the show. Aloha. Aloha. Um, First, I really appreciate this conversation. I think this statewide dialogue has to continue. And, uh, every you know, both Mark and uh, Dean and you guys really are helping in a sense. So keep it going. Keep the dialogue going because there's so many moving parts. Um, just to update a little bit of Lanai. I mean, I practically went to every meeting there was on Lanai, and I'd like to reframe a little bit the perception. Please realize that Castle and Cook still has some kind of an agreement with Larry Ellison to continue the project here. So hmm. while we think it appears to be at least strongly delayed, uh, I don't think anybody should ever think that Castle and Cook is still not pursuing this, and they show up at all the meetings. I think they were there on Maui. Um, I guess let me, let me try to keep it short because this is a real complex issue. Absolutely. Let's stick with uh, costs and benefits. I, I'm glad um, Jeff brought that up. Um, I think one of the issues that we raised on Lanai, and we realized the U.S. Department of Energy is very 
putting money into these projects. Um, I know Senator Noe was very positive about it. But when we analyzed it, uh, we never really got a clear cost-benefit analysis. And, and when the law was passed, I mean, it essentially said that taxpayers and ratepayers would pay for everything. We would pay for the cable. We would pay back the developer for all the costs. We would pay for the electricity. We would pay for the maintenance. So I would like some discussion. If we're going to pay for everything, whether we're a ratepayer or a taxpayer, please show us the benefit analysis. And I think the last part of that is intangible costs. Um, issue on Lanai, if you're going to build it at 50 or 80 wind turbines on Lanai, you're going to take up a huge cultural land area. And um, that was very difficult to cost out. I mean, what do you lose when you lose a large mass of your cultural heritage, uh, burial sites, and other things? So I'll leave it at that and let you guys hack it around. Thank no, you fantastic. very much. Thanks, Guy, for that uh, call. And, uh, you know, I think, Mark, you've been, you've been uh, working this for quite a while, and uh, maybe we'll get your, your sort of uh, feedback on. Uh, Guy brings up a good point. I mean, what are the, the kind of benefits to that community, to the Lanai community? Would they benefit from, uh, you know, getting a more, let's say, either stable electrical cost? Would it would it uh, would it go down perhaps with some of this uh, uh, wind generation wind generated power? Well, again, just to be clear, the the project uh, and the docket that's open now, twenty thirteen oh one six nine, is all about uh, a grid tie or unif- unified grid between Oahu and Maui Island. Um, there isn't any connection to Lanai uh, contemplated by that. And so I think some of the analyses that have, uh, the caller may have been referring to had to do with the generation tie uh, and the one-way transfer of electrons mm-hmm. you know, from windmills generated uh, in Lanai to Oahu. Uh, our analysis um, that was actually conducted by Navigant um, which is a large company that does uh, consulting on uh, power projects like this using a POM model, uh, which is a utility scale, a utility generation model, uh, showed that there were roughly, by combining the grids, and it's a fundamentally different concept than what had been proposed right, before, right. by combining those two grids, uh, and so you have uh, roughly uh, 14 to 1500 megawatts of, of uh of total uh, generation on Oahu, and then uh, an additional, uh, let's say, 260 megawatts of generation on Maui. When you combine those with the excess uh, generation capacity, um, you would you would actually have fuel savings from of roughly one billion dollars over the 30-year life. And then with the cost of cable, of the cable and the installation at $626 million, you would have a net $423 million of, of uh, net savings mm-hmm. during that time. So that's where the, the calculation comes in, just on the net savings uh, component. Mm-hmm. You know, we, uh, we've got a lineup of callers, uh, and we want to welcome uh, Jared from uh, YPO. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Hello. Um, the ideal grid system is uh, in the future. 
will resemble something like the internet, right, where we're trading electricity and uh, communications, like uh, like we trade uh, on the internet today. You've got the internet is a network of of networks, and um, I don't I don't hear anything about like uh, smart grid and microgrids and the growth of that on Oahu uh, that would really deal with a lot of the local distribution and generation uh, and and storage of energy. Where are we going with that? That I haven't heard anything about like co-ops. You know, uh, new co being created. Where are we going with that? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. Well, I mean, definitely thank you for your call. And uh, we do cover a smart grid uh, research and projects. There are many here on uh, Honolulu here and on And I our think show. I think maybe to Jared's point, I mean, there are pilots, but we're not hearing a whole lot about how it's getting incorporated into the actual grid. But maybe, Dean, you have some insight into that? Well, I, I was just going to throw in, Oahu has been looking at it. In fact, um, as part of the energy agreement that was signed in 2008 between the, the state and the HECO companies, mm-hmm. uh, there was supposed to be an application filed by the Hawaiian Electric Companies to in, install uh, advanced metering technology. Mm-hmm. And, and in fact, they did file the application. Uh, our, our office, uh, the Division of Consumer Advocacy, actually raised a number of concerns, one of which was that it wasn't clear where the benefits would be uh, identified and ultimately returned to the customers because the uh, application that the company filed, I think, had a 100, uh, about, about $105 million price tag associated with it. And that's a fairly significant investment. Mm-hmm. And if ratepayers are going to be expected to have to pay for it, we want to make sure that the benefits come back to it. So actually, um, the company went back. They've been doing a number of pilots. And uh, the, I, my understanding is the company has developed its smart grid roadmap trying to identify those benefits. And we may see an application later this year from the Hawaiian Electric Companies again mm-hmm. to actually have uh, advanced metering uh, technology as well as the associated smart grid rolled out in the, the service, ter- service territories for um, the Hawaiian Electric, uh, Hawaii Electric Light and, and Maui Electric Company. You know, if you're tuning in right now, uh, we're talking to uh, Dean Nishina from uh, the uh, Division of Consumer Advocacy and uh, Mark Glick from the Energy Office over at DBED. Uh, we want to welcome uh, Arius from Kauai to Bite Marks Cafe. Welcome to the show. Yeah, hi. Can you hear me okay? Yes, you we gotcha. can. Okay, I was going to talk about uh, shear waters on Kauai and uh, the fact that uh, Kauai got a, a serious fine. I think it was $30 million for... Um, not complying with the lighting, uh, which distracted the shearwaters. Shearwaters also get caught in windmills, and so uh, Kauai has opted out of all the winds. Uh, I guess that isn't so much of a problem on Oahu and Maui because of the mongooses. <laughs> uh, but the more I listen to the conversation there, the more it occurs to me that we are sliding down... Uh, 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 what do you call a law of diminishing returns? And I'd like to give the analogy. I was born and raised in Kashmir, India, and we occasionally had electricity. Uh, if you go from no electricity to one light bulb, it's a huge benefit. But if you go from 10 light bulbs to 20 light bulbs, it makes very little difference. So I think we need really seriously to, to consider reducing our consumption. That, I think, is the best solution. 
electric costs never go down. Uh, everybody knows that. You know, they're not going to go down if we put a cable across from from Oahu to Maui. They're going to go up. And especially if, if the taxpayers have to uh, pick up the bill. What? Uh, no, good, yeah. good, uh, good points. But uh, I don't know, Mark. Do you have any comment on how perhaps uh, people might change their behaviors in in terms of uh, energy consumption? I mean, what have what have you seen historically? Well, I, I, there's been actually great news as we've seen from 2010 when you've had a great influx of renewable energy. Um, the demand has dropped precipitously uh, for the last three years. Uh, in fact, such that it. It is uh, of, I think, uh, more significant concern in terms of business planning for the utility. Um, but the efficiency gains uh, have sh- have shown that we're uh, exceeding our fifteen percent fifteen percent efficiency portfolio standard, and that was roughly a, a kind of a marker for twenty fifteen. We're we're there now, uh, so I, I think we have made gains mm-hmm. in that area. Now, Dean, you know, that, that statement does definitely resonates for a lot of people, I'm sure. Energy costs will never go down. You know, that it's always just going to go up. Like real estate will always go up because they're not making any more. But you, your office as, a, as an advocate for consumers, for the rate payers, um, have you done studies or analysis about whether that could possibly happen with an interconnected grid? Well, and actually, thank you for asking that question. You know, with with the, what's being analyzed in docket two zero one three zero one six nine, as well as other proceedings, there is a distinct potential that energy will actually go down. Not just in terms of relative. Uh, initially, when a lot of the renewable energy projects came on earlier, the the price at which they were being set was the avoided cost, which basically ties it to the cost of oil. So the presumption was that on a going forward basis the more renewable renewable energy that could displace oil mm-hmm. would relatively decrease electricity prices on a going forward basis but what we're seeing right now is that um renewable energy projects can come in for a lower cost and if we can get those um the renewable energy from those projects actually at a fixed price there will be decreases in electricity rates like for instance mm-hmm. there's uh, actually some other dockets before the public utilities commission right now where um, the ele- Hawaiian Electric is trying to get the approval to move forward uh, to negotiate certain contracts with independent power producers for electricity that might be around 16 cents per kilowatt hour. And then the uh, current avoided cost is more like around 20, 25 cents. Mm. So, I mean, right there, you you will have a decrease because to the extent that the energy is being provided at approximately 15 to 16 cents per kilowatt hour, it'll be less. So mm-hmm. there will be an actual decrease in the electricity bills. Well, I think, you know, just the fact that we're having this conversation gets people to think about, you know, their energy usage patterns. And, uh, you know, I think uh, decreasing energy usage is always a good thing to try to do. Turn out those lights. Uh, we want to welcome Tim from uh, Maui to Bite Marks Cafe. Welcome to the show. Uh, aloha, and uh, thank you. Um, I'm hearing that ratepayers are often told there be a, a benefit, uh, you know, such as we're hearing for this uh, uh, cable transmission link and the grid uh, connection. I, you know, I find that you know, kind of hard to believe. I've never seen, you know, I've heard stories like this for years, uh, not necessarily about this particularly, but about the savings that are going to come. They never seem to come. Uh, the, the, the benefit seems to go to the uh, the corporations and the pub- and the uh, 
and the utilities that uh, are collecting the money. I think that that you, what we should strive to do for all the people is for each of these islands to have uh, enough uh, electricity for themselves without having to build expensive cables and spend all that money. There's wind, there's solar, there's geothermal, there's biomass, there's wave. There's so many different ways that we should be spending our, our time, our efforts, and our dollars uh, to, to make us independent so that we don't have to worry about a cable and, you know, hope. Hey, you've got some terrorists wants to cut it or something. You know, lots of things can happen. Well, so I'd just like to see us spend the money on uh, independence rather than uh, this linked system. That's a that's that's a, 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 that's a fair would, comment. I mean, yeah. why have uh, an interconnected, perhaps mutually uh, connected system with very you know with shared risks versus just trying to get every island to be independent? I mean, well, I, is that yeah, even practical, Mark? I mean, you know, like if uh, let's say after Iniki hit Kauai, you know, if there was an interconnected uh, grid, would would Kauai have been able to perhaps recover a little quicker uh, if there was some sort of uh, shared sort of power source? Yeah, I mean. Uh, it certainly would have uh, given the ability to have a great deal of backup power. But, you know, I think uh, in this case, uh, Kauai is probably not the greatest example because the distance me- means the interconnection there is, is not very likely. I see. Uh, ultimately, uh, I think the the notion, again, is that a combined system, a unified grid, is fundamentally different. I, I know a lot of people uh, who have thought or at least envisioned what had previously been laid out, it's hard for to envision what what essentially is a more unified or a expanded grid through rather common technology transmission lines, even though they're underwater. You know, I look at uh, projects, North Sea Grid, uh, to one of the largest green transmission projects underway, would link 100 gigawatts. I mean, we're talking about a, a thou- 100,000 megawatts of uh, offshore wind and other renewables from Germany, Denmark, Norway, Sweden, Belgium, and France. So there's a lot of uh, history and and uh, and certainly a lot of developing projects to move in this direction. Now, Dean, clearly there's still a lot of uh, thoughts, a lot of questions, and a lot of feedback, and your office is your mission is to hear that, incorporate that, and study that. Um, you've had a f- you've had a, a couple of meetings, I know, about this docket. Where where is the next opportunity for someone to participate uh, in this process? Um, well, just to clarify, with respect to this docket, um, the public meetings that were recently held uh, essentially represents the final procedural step that's mm-hmm. in the proceeding. But I think any any time that um, someone has a comment, they mm-hmm. can always file comments with both the P- Public Utilities Commission as well as our office, and we will try to incorporate those comments where possible. But at, at this point, the, the last procedural step has been completed. But there will be other opportunities because after the decision is made, when the Public Utilities Com- Commission comes out with this, it's likely to initiate another docket mm-hmm. wherein people can offer comments. And I would say just the shift in focus from a one-way transmission to an interconnect demonstrates that uh, listening to the community. Uh, Mark, um, where can someone find more information on the State Energy Office and its undersea power cable plan? Yeah, the uh, overall uh, agenda, state agenda, can be found at energy.hawaii.gov, and our docket filings can be found on the PUC uh, website.
Okay. Fantastic. Well, you know, I think this is a conversation that's going to con- continue. Uh, you know, as uh, as uh, we continue to have this uh, conversation about the undersea cable. Mark Glick is the energy administrator over at DBED, and Dean Nishina is the utility administrator over at the uh, Division of Consumer Advocacy. I don't know what, you know, whatever title works for you, that's fine <laughs> with us. And thank you for both of you for joining us today. Thank you. And, Thanks so much. And thank you for having me. I, I think I really enjoyed this conversation, and it really does need to get out so people can have an input. Cool. Absolutely. Thanks. That's right. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week when we talk about a new television program called Voice of the Sea. And if you miss any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, email us at feedback at bitemarkscafe.org. And of course, you can find me on Twitter. I'm at bitemarks. And you can follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chong and our executive producer is Beth Ann Kozlovich. And of course, we'll see you next week on another edition of Bite Mark Cafe.